There are many cities that hold a great deal of appeal to me, cities I would love to visit and explore one day. In the U.S. alone, I would love to visit San Francisco, New York, Atlanta, New Orleans, Philadelphia, Nashville, Seattle. It's a pretty big bucket list. If you're wondering what connects all these very different cities, it's music history and sports, generally. But uh, there are a few cities, there's a few cities that I've been fortunate enough to visit already and really enjoyed in, in my brief stay at Chicago, St. Louis, Denver, and Fargo. Fargo's always had an appeal to me. It's this little podunk town in the middle of nowhere, um, mostly because of the movie that it's n- named after it. But, um, so I got to visit those places. This last winter, uh, I actually got to cross another city off my list uh, when Angie and I took the girls to L.A. for nearly a week. It was fabulous, even though our impression of L.A. was, was Disneyland, uh, a Rams game, and endless, endless, endless expanses of interstate highway. <laughs> um, but it was great. That trip also brought us to another city, a city that has never had any appeal to me whatsoever. That is Sin City, uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. Vegas has a bit of a reputation, am I right? Some might say it's more like an infamy. There's, there's a reason their tourism slogan is, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And that uh, is exactly the attitude that made Angie and I want to avoid staying in Vegas longer than necessary. I hated wandering through hazy oceans of VLTs populated by the bobbing heads of blank-eyed, blank-faced, middle-aged men and women in cheesy Stetsons and bedazzled t-shirts, cigars dangling unattended to, just staring at the machine endlessly as they're circled by the bloodthirsty sharks of empty consumerism, greedy optimism, and lazy sexuality. One woman was sitting at a slot machine when we went up to our room at about 11 p.m., when I went down at 9 a.m. to go get McDonald's for breakfast, there she was, still chugging away. Um, having just come from Disney, we, we had to keep Zoe from running up to every filthy costume character on the street, handing out pamphlets for all-you-can-eat buffets and, and escort services. And Zoe just stay. <laughs> yeah, oh, there's Pikachu. No, Stay away from Pikachu. Um. In Vegas, everything is designed for you to consume lavishly, waste carelessly, and submit to temptation selfishly. Pleasure is the ultimate idol. We loved the Beatles Cirque du Soleil show that we saw. But we kind of hated everything else. Of course, lots of people hate all that stuff and still go to Vegas and still have a great time. I'm not saying it's bad to go to Vegas at all, nor am I saying that my small impression of that city was even fair. We were only in Vegas for like 14 hours total. So, I mean, I'm just saying it wasn't for us. What we saw in Vegas was a glitzy, self-obsessed, pleasure-driven microcosm of everything that I find deplorable in the world. Any virtuous aspect of sex or fun or money was warped beyond recognition, like the desert mirage that the hotel across from us was named after. Now, you may be wondering, why is Chris coming down so hard on poor little Las Vegas this morning, especially when their hockey team is doing so well? Well, I wanted to paint a portrait of my vision of Las Vegas in order for you to get a sense of the city that Paul finds himself uh, in after his ministry in the Macedonian cities of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, um, and after his totally unique speech to the pagan philosophers in Athens. He now finds himself in Corinth, in chapter 18. He stumbled into the ancient Roman equivalent of Las Vegas, a city of money, sex, and power. So, ladies and gentlemen, may I present to you Viva Las Corinth. Corinth was the third largest city in the Roman Empire after Rome itself and Alexandria, which is in modern-day Egypt. Um, 
it had a population of about 200,000 people, which is 20 times the population of Athens at the time. Corinth, it's right kind of in this land bridge. And so Corinth sat on the junction of an important east-west shipping travel route, trade route, as well as an important north-south land traveling trade route between the Peloponnesian Isthmus here, which was important, and the rest of Greece and the rest of what we call Europe today. Because of its favorable location, Corinth was fabulously wealthy. Even after it was completely leveled by the Romans in 146 BC as punishment for trying to lead an uprising against Rome, Rome leveled it completely to the ground, and it sat barren for 100 years. But when it was rebuilt after 100 years, it immediately rose to prominence, power, and profit again. Uh, that was about 40, 44 BC, um, and it rose right to its previous power position as well. There was a lot of money to be made in Corinth. And part of Corinth's Vegas-like reputation came from its religious history as well. The idolatrous heart of the city was a grand temple to Aphrodite. What do you know about Aphrodite? What is she the goddess of? Yeah, she's the goddess of love, which in that society meant sex. Um, She was the Greek goddess of love. And her, her temple was surrounded by and populated by over a thousand temple prostitutes that people would come and worship Aphrodite by having sex with whenever they wanted. So even by the deviant standards of the ancient Greeks and Romans, Corinth had an infamous reputation for sexual depravity. So it was fabulously wealthy, and it was fabulously sexually depraved. And doesn't that sound a lot like Vegas, thriving on sex and money? If Corinth had booked Celine Dion for a six-month residency, it would have looked exactly like Vegas. And it's into all of this that our beloved apostle to the Gentiles meekly enters. Paul himself writes in his letter to these people in 1 Corinthians 2.3, he says, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. That's how Paul approached the city of Corinth, weakly with fear and trembling. Paul was worried about the reception he would receive. He was a former Pharisee who was now devoted to a life of service to a holy, sinless son of God, walking into a lion's den of wealth and pleasure. After being beaten and tossed out of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea for proclaiming the crucified Christ, and after being mocked and laughed at by the intellectuals down the road at Athens' Mars Hill, Paul expected the worst in this ancient version of Sin City. He was alone at the time. He didn't have his traveling companions with him. So he was alone, he was demoralized, he was afraid, facing a city obsessed with everything that he and the gospel stood against. What good could he do in Corinth? What hope did he have? What light could he shine in a city glaring with so many enticing and tempting lights of its own? Bright light city, going to set my soul, going to set my soul on fire. That's what Elvis sang about Las Vegas. And that, that's what Paul is standing in front of here as he prepares to enter Corinth. But in all of that, what encouragement can we receive from the adventures of Paul in Sin City, Corinth? Well, we're going to read Acts 18, verses 1 to 17. We're going to read it in chunks. We're going to read the last story, but we're not actually going to talk about it today. We're just going to really quickly breeze through that portion. But in all of it, we're going to see, hopefully, get some encouragement for how Paul was able to to withstand the draw of this sin city. So let's begin with verses 1 to 4. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, 
because Claudius, that's the emperor of the time, Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So, here we have the first two strategies of Paul to overcome his internal concerns and his external temptations. The first was to make friends with great people. Always a great strategy. If you want, if, if you're feeling lonely and worried about temptations to come, surround yourself with people who will encourage you. And that's exactly what he did. And the second was to stay busy with work. Let's talk about those a little bit. Priscilla and Aquila were literally a godsend for Paul. God literally sent them to Paul to help him. People that he could share his passions and his pursuits with. Throughout Luke and Paul's writings, it's always Priscilla that gets named first. It's Priscilla and Aquila, which was rare in antiquity for the wife to be named first. You can imagine in a patriarchy, it was male-dominated, and so the men would always be named first. That may be because she was from a noble family while he was of lesser social standing, or it could be just Luke's little subversive dig at the patriarchy to, to name the wife first. Either way, Luke tells us how these fabulous servants of Jesus ended up in Corinth. They had been run out of Rome, along with every other Jew, um, by Claudius, Emperor Claudius. It was not the first nor the last time that Jewish people or Middle Eastern people of any religious background had been made easy targets and scapegoats by a messed up Eurocentric empire. Just a cursory glance through history. You see ancient Rome do this, people of the Middle East, in this case Jewish people. We saw the Crusades, Nazi Germany, Brexit. Islamophobic policies and prejudices both north and south of the American-Canadian border, it's always been easier for Western empires to marginalize and blame those of Middle Eastern descent than to understand and embrace them. But I digress. My bias is showing. I just, that the pattern that we see today is not a new pattern. It's always been easier to blame Middle Eastern people. So, Rome was really good at it. In fact, they would do it again and again and again. Blame the Jews. You're an easy target. Let's get back to Priscilla and Aquila. As we'll see, this Corinthian couple are welcomed into Paul's inner circle of travel companions, eventually being posted by Paul in Ephesus after helping initiate the fledgling community of Christ followers in Corinth. So they were instrumental in starting the church in Corinth. They become travel companions of Paul, and as we'll see in two weeks, when he ends up in Ephesus, he actually leaves them there to continue the ministry. At a time when Paul was desperately lonely, Priscilla and Aquila offered more than just hospitality. They offered him hope. The presence of two fellow servants that he could trust and bounce ideas off of and work with must have been just literally a huge godsend, as you can probably imagine. And they were more than just co-servants in the kingdom. They were actually co-workers in the marketplace as well. Acts 18 is the reason that the word tent maker uh, is, is in the English language still. And it's not because people still choose the fabrication of transportable dwelling places as a means of live, making a living. Unless you work for Coleman, the tent company, then you don't really make tents as a living. Back then it was a big deal. Rather, the term tent maker, as we use it today, is still used for what it represented to Paul, rather than the little literal definition of a person making tents. Paul grew up in Tarsus, which we talked about this um, half a year ago when we looked at our introduction to Paul, Tarsus was renowned for its goats. <laughs> That's right. It was famous for its goats. There was goats that lived in the, the Tarsus Mountains, and their, these goats, their hides and their fur were particularly useful in the making of leather and tents, the breed of goats that lived there. 
Paul had apprenticed in this field as a young man. His, his dad was a tent maker using these goats. And so Paul became a tent maker as well. And that came in handy when he needed a means to support himself here in Corinth. And that's how the term tent making gets used today. It's actually a term that's very special to, to my family and myself, to Angie and I, since we are at least halfway tent makers. No, I've never touched a hairy goat hide in my life. And when we go to Jasper Camp, I make the kids put the tents together so I don't have to do any of that. But I'm still a tent maker. And the reason is um, because we are partial tent makers in the figurative sense that Paul trailblazed, the sense of ministers working in the common labor force in order to support themselves financially. That's what it means to be a tent maker today. You are a pastor, a missionary, some servant of the gospel who makes his money by some other means than just the ministry so that you can support yourself in the ministry. Paul was a Jew, and to Jews it was improper for a rabbi to receive payment for his teaching. It was considered immoral for a rabbi to be paid for doing what God had sent him to do, which is interesting. This was in sharp contrast to the Greeks, who despised manual labor of any sort. They were all about thinking and philosophy, soft work, um, which is actually more of the kind of work that I do. <laughs> but they, they, um, they despised manual labor. And so they would have looked down on Paul big time for, for supporting himself in this way. But for Paul, it made moral and practical sense to work for a living. That's what he needed to do. Moreover, it provided opportunities to engage in relationship building with the regular Corinthian folk that he encountered on his day-to-day job. The people he worked with, the people he sold tents to, uh, where he got his supplies from. He would make all kinds of connections and would be able to evangelize that way. And I myself can speak to the benefits of a Christian leader being involved in a non-Christian field of employment, and many of you can as well. Not only does it supplement the very gracious salary that we are gifted with here in the church, but it makes us a presence in the community not just with five-year-olds, but with their siblings and with their families as well. Being surrounded by non-Christians keeps my love for every member of my community sharpened. Um, It's good to be surrounded by Christians, but it's also good to be surrounded by non-Christians. But it's human nature to get wrapped up in tasks, measurable and masterable. And it keeps our vision sharp, our hunger stoked, and our mind engaged. And this was true for Paul. For, For Angie and I, that task means playing a hand in the early development of children for a year or two. That is the task that we get involved in to to keep ourselves sharp. For Paul, it was tanning goat hides and stitching tents together out of them. It was a practical necessity. He would write to these very same Corinthians. In in 1 Corinthians, he he wrote, 1 Corinthians 9.18, he said, What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge, and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. So he refused to take any, any pay for his his teaching role. So it was a practical necessity for him to support himself by being a tent maker. But for more than that, for a lonely man in need of focus in a corrupt city, it's easy to see wisdom in wrapping himself up in physical labor. So aside from from a paycheck and an opportunity to build evangelical relationships with neighbors, business people in and around a metropolitan city, it also freed up Paul's mind for his real purpose. And I find that's true for me too. When I'm doing when I'm doing menial tasks, repetitive, physical, then my mind is free to, to think about anything. Um, I do be- my best thinking in situations like that, I think. And that was true for Paul. It freed his mind up for his real purpose, which was 
He'd work five, six days a week, and then on the Sabbath, he'd hit the synagogue hard. He'd get down there, and he'd preach Jesus as Messiah, um, trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks that Jesus was the Christ. This system worked well for Paul, as far as we can tell, but then verse 5 happens. And in verse 5, Paul was finally reunited with Silas and Timothy. They had stayed behind in Macedonia to to serve the baby churches that they had planted there. And this is what verse 5 says. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So after being finally reunited with his ministry partners and friends, Paul becomes devoted. That's the Greek word, syneko, which we translate devoted to evangelism. Well, does that mean he wasn't devoted before? That he would work and just sort of half-heartedly preach in the synagogue? What does it mean that he was devoted? Well, I think it means two things. First of all, um, Silas and Timothy brought a sizable amount of money from their friends in the Philippian church, which Paul mentions in his letter to the Philippians. This money meant that Paul no longer needed to make tents to support himself so he could redouble his efforts to preaching and teaching. He now had time on his hands. He could go to the synagogue more than once a week. He could spend time in study and in prayer and, and all the things that made his ministry so much more effective. Um, But the urgent sense of devotion experienced by Paul in verse 5 probably also comes from B, the shot in the arm that he would have received from seeing his old friends, as well as hearing about the healthy growth and progress made by his new friends, the believers in Macedonia. He was worried about those new believers. Remember, he had had a pretty solid group in Philippi led by Lydia. But when he got to Thessalonica, they, they didn't come from a Jewish background that they could fall back on. They came from a pagan background, and Paul was worried about them. He was worried that suffering would come, which inevitably it would, but that that suffering would wither them up at the roots and they would die. Um, and so he was really worried about Thessalonica. And so for, for Silas and Timothy to come and say, hey, guess what? Thessalonica is doing super well. They're blossoming. They're flourishing. They love Jesus. That would have been such an encouragement to Paul. As I mean, when we go down to Calgary and we see our close friends, that's always a shot in the arm for us too. Like, we love being with you guys, but there's something about being with your your closest friends, right, that really refresh you. And that was true for Paul, who had been worried about the seeds he had spread for the gospel in those places. So to embrace his friends and hear them tell a flourishing faith and steadfast belief among the baby Christians that he loved so much, that would have filled him with renewed purpose and joy. All believers, you included, from time to time, need the encouragement that comes with seeing the fruit of your faithful servant service blossom and bloom it does the heart well to see success right obviously that was true for paul too who was this hero who would have continued to serve no matter what but when he heard that that his seeds had been growing well he was re-energized that's where the the greek word devoted comes again he he doubled down on his efforts to, to keep up the good work but not everything was going rosy for paul despite the return of his dear friends and the encouraging reports that they brought to him. So let's read verses 6 to 17. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. 
for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. We're going to study that in depth, but I'm going to read verses 12 to 17 just to get a sense of another discouragement and another encouragement. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Then they all turned to Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. So despite the shot in the arm from his recent visit from his friends, there were stumbling blocks for Paul, potential stumbling blocks. I count two disappointments in this passage we just read and three major encouragements. The discouragements are rooted in the same thing, Jewish response to the gospel. And though the encouragements are incredibly varied in their sources, one comes from faithful Jewish people, one comes from a pagan ruler, they, they come from different places, but the encouragements are identical in their effect. They each powerfully legitimize and fortify Paul's work in the ancient sin city. And so the first disappointment is Paul's ineffectiveness among his own people, the Jews, which which is would have been devastating. He loved Jewish people, being a Jew himself. Anytime they rejected, it grieved him. Um, and it led to the grand spectacle of Paul shaking out his clothes in their presence. Can you imagine if I, stu- if I was really displeased with you and I just got up and went, that's it, enough of you, and I just shook my clothes out? That It's a very strange thing. But he had done this earlier with his sandals after being run out of Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13. And the purpose here is the same. He wanted to leave the faithless Corinthian synagogue without even a speck of dust on his clothes so that he wouldn't be defiled by their unbelief or associated with the judgment that was coming on them for their faithlessness. It's an incredibly powerful and damning sort of display, and one that would have grieved Paul tremendously. And so, Paul, shaking off his robes, declares, Fine then, I'll get as far from your faithlessness as possible, and go to the ends of the earth looking for people who will listen to truth and obey God himself. And then he literally went next door. (laughs) I'm getting as far away from you faithless people as possible. He literally went to the next house over which was the home of uh, Titius Justice. He didn't have to go very far. The disbelief of his people would have been a crushing disappointment, but the low of that loss was surpassed by the first two of the three incredible encouragements Paul experiences in this passage. The first is the conversion of Titius Justice and Crispus. Aside from sounding respectively like a law firm and a discount brand of crackers, delicious Crispus, their conversion is noteworthy for the following reasons. Titius Justus probably had another first name. Every All Roman men had three names. So we know two of his names here for sure, Titius and Justus. But he probably had another first name, and that was Gaius. 1 Corinthians 1.14 gives us the name of two men baptized by Paul's own hands in Corinth. The first is Crispus, the second is Gaius. He doesn't mention Titius there. Um, and then in Romans 16.23, Paul writes of a Corinthian named Gaius, who was host to Paul and the whole church. Host to Paul. Doesn't it say here that Paul went next door to Titius Justice's house? So it's sort of like this cross-scriptural New Testament detective game. Uh, we can deduce that Titius Justice, like all Roman men, had a third name identified by Paul as Gaius. 
Why is that important? Well, though Paul was rejected by the Jewish people, he hadn't been rejected by all Jewish people. He had convinced a wealthy man and his household to convert to Christianity. And that man's generous nature, Titius Justice, meant that the new church in Corinth had a place to meet together freely, right next door to the synagogue. So that didn't disrupt, if people were used to coming to the synagogue to worship God, they didn't have to disrupt their routine. They just had to go next door, which was very handy. But also, he was apparently a wealthy man with a big house that many, many people could gather in, which was handy because eventually Paul's ministry in Corinth would be tremendously successful and it would need to fit lots of people. So Titius's, uh, Titius Justice's conversion was a big deal for Paul. And so too was the conversion of Crispus, who was no less than the leader of the synagogue that he had just shook his, the dust off his clothes in. Most of that synagogue hated Paul wanted to, to get run Paul out of town, but not the synagogue leader. He may not have been generally successful in that synagogue, but it would have been a tremendous solace to know that the most spiritually influential and the most powerful person in that place of rejection had become an ally. Paul got the last laugh, and that always feels good. The person who was most expected to listen to Paul with an open mind and see Jesus as Messiah would have been the synagogue leader, and Paul had done just that. It worked. For all his hard work and prayerful determination, Paul was being justified, or should I say justified? Tidiest justice, anyone? That's a good joke. You should laugh at it. For all his hard work and prayerful determination, Paul was being justified by the conversion of Gaius, Tidius Justice, and Crispus. The next source of encouragement for Paul in this passage was the most significant encouragement in all of Acts 18. The most obvious one. The risen Jesus himself speaks up, making himself known as he often did for Paul in periods of transition. You think of when Paul is traveling around looking for churches to crush, and he gets a vision of Jesus saying, why are you persecuting me? Knock it off. Come be on my team. And he does. Or when he his plan is to go to Ephesus, and he sees a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, no, don't go there. Come here. And so he does, and that's how he ends up in this very successful position that he's in right now, because Jesus sent him a vision. And it's happening again. And Paul, this time, is being strengthened in a time of real weakness, of uncertainty, of loneliness. Um, Jesus shows up. Jesus tells Paul not to be afraid, but to speak up. For he is with Paul, and he won't let any harm come to him. That must have been a really powerful thing for Paul to experience. It's like if your boss came down from the top floor, comes down five floors to pat you on the back and say, Hey, we're doing a round of layoffs. But you don't need to be scared at all. Don't worry. You, your job is secure. You are okay. Your employment and position of influence are safe. That's what it would have been like for Paul. Keep up the great work. It's this divine pat on the back. Perhaps you've experienced a similar gift of encouragement from God yourself. I know that I have. Words from a friend or a wife, who is my friend. I'm not sure why I differentiated that. but <laughs> um. Words from a friend that are exactly the kind words that I needed to hear to continue, to strengthen me at a time when I needed. Or maybe it's the exact passage in your daily devotional reading that inspires you or challenges you or simply reminds you of your elevated standing in the loving eyes of your father. Maybe just reading scripture, something jumps out like when we're reading these Proverbs and something um, stands out and connects with you. That Those are the words of Jesus connecting with you. Whatever it is, it's always good to get those moments of encouragement where we, we, you know he's got your back and it'll be okay and you will be victorious. 
And so whatever you are going through right now, let me be that voice in this moment to let you know that whatever suffering you have experienced, he sees your pain and he grieves you for your pain, grieves with you for your pain. Whatever fear or doubt you have in service to him, don't worry. He is stronger than your fear, stronger than your doubt, and he will actively empower you to finish strong. Whatever low image you have of yourself is, is a circus mirror distortion of how he actually sees you. He doesn't see you low at all. He sees you as beautiful, powerful, redeemed. So fear not. Fear not is a common refrain in scripture from God to his people. Fear not. If even Paul needed to hear it, in the dark and depraved corner of the Roman world that he finds himself in, then I'm sure you and I need to hear it from time to time as well. So, fear not, like Christian Bible Church. You can conquer this dark and broken world by the power of his love, filling you with life and power. You can do it. Keep serving him and fear not. He is with you. And maybe even better than he is with you, he's with us together, strengthening us. You can do it. Fear not. In fact, Jesus' message to Paul in verse 10, here's what, here's what, I'll just read what Jesus says again real quick. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent for I am with you and no one's going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. That's an interesting thing for Jesus to say. I have many people in this city. The word people in, in that, that we translate as people here in the Greek is the word laos. It's where we get the word laity from, common people. But here's your word nerd moment for the, for the day. In the Bible, laos always means God's people, as in Israel. All, when, whenever it's used before this passage, it's always Israel who are God's people. But here it doesn't mean Israel. God's people are bigger than just Israel. Here it doesn't mean just Israel. It means there are all kinds of people from every nation in the Roman Empire and beyond. From tent-making Corinthian married couples who are Jewish to purple-cloth-dealing Gentile women in Philippi like Lydia to former Pharisees in Tarsus to Greek doctors like our author. There's all kinds of disparate people being pulled together um, under the banner of Jesus. Right up to modern day where we have cattle farmers and chicken farmers and program assistants and electricians and stay-at-home moms and landfill managers and even pastors who occasionally serve as DJs for community functions. No matter their social standing, no matter their gender, no matter their religious backgrounds, no matter their goodness or their badness, they are laos. They are God's people. Whatever past you've had, Whatever person you are or have been, you can become God's laos, God's people. His people live in a dark and broken world, filled with corrupted sex and corrupted money and corrupted power. Not just in Las Vegas, not just in Corinth, but everywhere. That is here, today. You you know this. I'm not a guy who likes to, to pound the pulpits and point out all the bad of the world, but you know it's there. You see the ugliness of the world around you. And like Paul, that ugliness, that brokenness can leave us feeling lonely and afraid and uncertain. No matter who you are, whatever your background is, in this dark and broken world, he sends us hope and encouragement. Like Paul, he sends us friends to support us. Like Paul, he sends us work to do to expand our influence and sharpen our mind. Like Paul, he allows us to see the fruit of our work for him. Neighbors turning from darkness to light, he lets us see the fruit of our, our labor. And finally, like Paul, his words remind us to lay down our fear and to persevere in service because he is with us and we are surrounded by his power and his people. 
There's one more major discouragement and one more even greater encouragement for Paul to experience in Corinth, but we'll talk about that next week. We'll save it for later. It's the story of the trial before Gallio in verses 12 to 17. He is rejected by the Jews again. And here's the fifth one I'll just tell you now. He is, he is victorious in court once again as well. What an encouragement that would be to, to have a Roman official say, no, this is legitimate. Stop fighting about it. The Christians, they're okay. Um, but we'll flesh that story out further next week. For now, know that Paul initially faced the darkness of Sin City with fear and trembling. He was worried about what he would do, how he would be received. But by the time 18 months had passed, God had filled his servant with power and purpose and encouragement. And the ancient Sin City would look a lot less sinful because of Paul. There is encouragement here. And I hope there's encouragement for you as well. That whatever darkness you're facing, fear not. He is with you. And there's many people sharing this power with you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the story of Paul and Corinth. And we, we make connections, we easily make connections between the, land, the world of Corinth and the world that we find ourselves in today. That there is corruption and darkness and brokenness and ugliness. But in all that, as demoralizing and as lonely as that can make us feel, thank you, Jesus, that in you, we have a team around us. Thank you that you encourage us and you strengthen us and you support us and you guide us and you help us in every way possible to be shining lights in a dark world for you. Thank you for all these encouragements that Paul experienced, and I pray that we can see those things at work in us now, how your words come to us when we need them, how you give us good people in our lives to support, to, to support us, how you give us jobs to do that give us meaning and purpose and keep our mind engaged. Father, in all of these things, we thank and praise you, and I pray that as we leave here into a dark and corrupt world, that we would be always mindful of the light that you shine around us and in us that we would take encouragement in that. Pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. If Corinth had booked Celine Dion for a six-month residency, it would have looked exactly like Vegas. That's a good joke. You should laugh at it. No, I've never touched a hairy goat hide in my life.